This is the School Success Podcast, a podcast for school leaders to learn from other school leaders what's working and what's not, and to get inspiration and encouragement, as well as strategies to grow school enrollment, connect with families, retain teachers, recruit teachers, and everything in between. You guys are heroes, and I cannot thank you enough for pouring into this next generation that's coming behind us. My goal is you will take at least one thing away from every episode that you can take back to your school to make it better than it is right now. Please enjoy the School Success Podcast. Hey, School Success Makers. Today, you guys are in for a treat. I am joined by my new friend, Gavin McCormick, out of the great country of Australia. We dive into so many things, education, specifically Montessori, which those that know me know that one's very near and dear to my heart. I love Montessori. And this conversation is a blast. I could have chatted with him for hours upon hours, which we did talk for a couple hours, but the recording is not that long. Maybe we should have done that, but hey, Whatever. It was a great conversation. You guys are going to learn a ton from this one. And hey, I always say I'm hoping you can take at least one thing from every episode. Maybe you guys can take more than one today. Two, three, four, five. I don't know. But this one is a blast. So please, please enjoy this next episode of the School Success Podcast. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the School Success Podcast. I'm your host, Mitchell Slater. I'm joined by a new friend all the way over in beautiful Sydney, Australia, Mr. Gavin McCormick. He's an amazing, amazing guy who has uh, quite the the track record in education, big in Montessori, and he's going to talk about also this ambassador thing that he just mentioned that's pretty cool. It's on his LinkedIn. I encourage you guys to follow him. He shares some, some amazing content. He's also uh, a TED Talk speaker. He had one a couple years ago. It's also amazing. So I won't toot his horn anymore because I, I don't want to spoil anything from him. But I'm going to pass it off to Gavin to introduce himself. So Gavin, welcome to the podcast, sir. Hello. Thank you so much for having me, Mitchell. It's uh, a pleasure to be here all the way from Australia. Yes, thanks for having me over there in the U.S. Love it. Well, your background is in Montessori. I know you've been there doing that for a while. I'd love to hear kind of your story of how you got into Montessori and how long you've been learning about Montessori. So the journey started as an educator when I was uh, when I was 17. I finished school and uh, sat with my mom in the house and said, hey, mom, like, what do I do with my life? Uh, I'm doing economics, geography, um, computer science and German. Uh, what do I do with that? The grades are looking good. Uh, which one do I choose? And I said, I'm thinking about economics because you can make a lot of cash. And mum said, <laughs> and we're, I'm from a poor family, a single mom, uh, you know, and not really any money in, in our family in terms of the history of it. Anyway, she said, why don't you be a teacher? Uh, because um, you're good with kids and you'll never work for a man driving around in a Maserati, smoking cigars and drinking whiskey using your time to make himself richer. And I was like, I thought about it. I thought, you know, you're totally right, Mum. I don't want to work for I don't want to work for that guy, <laughs> that fictional guy. So I will be a teacher. So I filled in this form to be a teacher at university and got into the course. And uh, funnily enough, there's about four hundred people in my course and there was only two guys. And there was me and another guy. He quit uh, halfway through, so there's only me left. I was the only man, um, which is pretty fun. Um, and I went into teaching and, and realized that there was no men in teaching at all, which is uh, slightly surprising considering 
there's a lot of boys in school, but there's not a lot of men in teaching, which is strange. But it made you, it put you in a bit of a niche. You were kind of a, a speciality, you know, a, a um, something that schools uh, liked and they wanted. They were like, was a man teaching primary school? Get him, grab him quickly. So I had all these nice jobs back in England, and then I, um, I, I went. I used to be a football player, so I moved to France. I used to play football in France and teach at the same time, and then I went on a trip around the world, uh, backpacking and. I ended up in Korea and I ended up in China and ended up in all over the place and just teaching along the way gave me a beautiful catalyst to travel, teach and travel at the same time, which is cool. And then I ended up in Australia. Uh, now, for anyone who's not been to Australia, it's uh, when you get here, um, it's hard to leave, um, you know, because, you know, it's a beautiful place. Although there's snakes and spiders and these kangaroos with muscles that fight each other in the street. Um, there, there is, it's beautiful, it's beautiful. And it's really multicultural and a really nice place to live. So I couldn't leave. And I found a job working in an Islamic school. I'm not a Muslim and I'm not Islamic, but I knew about Islam because my hometown has a lot of Muslims. So I thought, what's the quickest way to get a job? There's a job in this Muslim school. I applied. I went to the uh, the interview and said to the uh, the principal, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And she said, whoa, you speak Arabic. I said, no, not really. I just know some stuff. She said, well, you've already nearly got the job. <laughs> so, uh, which is pretty cool. And then uh, I did the interview and got the job. And this, this school just happened to be a school where refugees came from Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya. And they arrived in Australia and they came to this school. And so I had all these kids coming from these terrible scenarios. Um, you know, uh, you can imagine, I won't describe them on your podcast, but they've come from war-torn countries where terrible things have happened to their family. They've run away and the children have seen these horrors before them. And then they come to your, your class and you expect to teach them fractions or nouns or, you know, adverbs. And they've gone through all this horrible stuff, but you're expecting to teach them this really this stuff to them, which may be very mundane and, and not going to really, you know, excite them. And so I devised this system in my class where it was a 50-50. I thought to myself, I've got as much to learn from these kids as they've got to learn from me. You know, if they can travel the whole world and have the persistence, determination, strength, courage, bravery to then arrive in another country at seven and take on a new life, I've got just as much to learn from you as you've got to learn from me because I am no way as strong as you are. And I'm not seeing what you've seen and not been through. So we have this thing where... I handed the curriculum to them. I said, we're going to teach stuff together. Like, okay, you, you know, you're from Algeria. What's your speciality? And Kibbutz said, well, you know, my mum's a really good chef. I said, great. We'll learn about cuisine from you, Algerian cuisine from you. What about you? You know, and so the kids had this ownership over the curriculum. It was very cool. I was doing this for a few years. And then the government turned up to inspect the school to do like a spot inspection. And they came to my class. And everyone's very nervous when this happens. But the lady at the end, she said, goodness me, that was really nice. And I said, thank you so much. And she said, I didn't realize a Montessori teacher worked here. I said, I'm not a Montessori teacher. What is it? Is it isn't it a cult? She said, no, it's not a cult. She said, but I think you are one without knowing. You better go and have a look at a Montessori school. So I went and had a look. And then when my eyes were opened. I thought, wow, this is unreal. Like, this is cool. Look at the independence in these kids. Look at the autonomy. Look at how much agency they have and how much you know, how adult they are from such a young age. So I retrained as a Montessori teacher. I did another degree in Montessori. Then I got a job in a Montessori school. And then I was principal of a Montessori school for four years. And I just stepped out of that role. And now I'm the Montessori ambassador for Australia. So that's uh, my journey in a very, you know, a succinct way. But that's where we are today.
Wow. That is an awesome story. And I love that it's even just natural. It's not something like, I'm just going to do this Montessori thing. It literally is a part of you. It's, it, it is you. So that is really cool. I didn't know that about you. I would love to hear about this Ambassador Montessori of Australia part. What, how, what is that? How exactly did you get that? And what does that entail for you? So obviously you said about the TED Talk. So, so I did a TED Talk and, you know, it was all based on Montessori theory. And what I found really surprising when I got into Montessori was there was no one really talking about it. You know, you go online to look for who's talking about this. And um, all of the people who, you know, it's a very old philosophy. It's 150 years old. And not very old, but in terms of education, it's old. And so Maria Montessori, you know, it was 150 years ago. So all the people talking about it or all the papers around it or all the books they're 60, 70 years old. And so there was no one really talking about it in the context of modern education, which is different. You know, it's different now. We're in, this, we're in the 21st century. So I thought, well, why don't I just stand on top of the tallest mountain and shout it as loud as I possibly can so people can know more about it? And so first of all, I started talking to my friends and all their kids started going to Montessori schools. And then I took over a school. And so I had this school. I was running a school. And I got to stand on stages and in front of huge audiences and talk about what was happening in my school. And all this magical stuff was happening, you know, where kids were running their own businesses or their own charities and they were 10 years old. And I was like, wow, people need to know about this. So I started doing keynote speeches at, you know, World Education Summit. In fact, this year I was the, I was the keynote at the World Education Summit. And, you know, everyone's listening and I get to say Montessori from the, from the top of my lungs and then Montessori Australia, which is you know, the governing body here in Australia, they said, hey, look, will you be our ambassador? Because we need someone with a, yeah. with a big, loud voice like yours uh, so people know about what we are and what we're about. So that's how it came about. And, you know, I'm actually really honored. Uh, I love being the Montessori ambassador. It's very cool. Uh, I feel honored. There were a lot of people with way more experience than me, but maybe just don't shout as loud as I do. <laughs> Well, I thought it was interesting before we started recording that you said and mentioned that the United States was the biggest um, place for Montessori. And I still feel like it's not very well known. If I mention it to people that they're like, oh, I, I think I've heard of that or some of them haven't heard of it at all. It's actually, from what we saw, really big in the northern parts of the United States. So we're New York, Michigan, Minnesota, like the northeast area and north central really big up there lots of big really really high-end popular Montessori schools but man in the south it is not it's not as common and I know that there are certain places I'm sure, obviously you know this as well it wasn't a trademark name so anybody can put the word Montessori on any school and it's called a Montessori school so I know we've we've visited one before and we're like this is not a Montessori school all these all these kids are on tablets or whatever at a young age or something so uh, I know you have to be careful so there are publicly funded Montessori schools here, but I don't, I don't know how many of them are actually, you know, like it's legit Montessori schools. Uh, but I think we should get you over here. If you haven't been to the United States before for some type of summit, have you been over here for any type of speaking engagement yet? I haven't. That's funny because I, I was actually going to head to the U S after Australia on my world trip and, uh, I just didn't leave, you know, so I didn't have a chance, um, to actually go over there, but I've been invited lots of times, but then COVID happened. And so I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure it's coming. There's lots of things happening in the U.S., which is really cool. But, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it is huge in the U.S. in actual fact um, because, you, I mean, you have a big population. And the thing to say about Montessori is it was designed for the poor. So Maria Montessori designed it in the streets uh, of Italy uh, um, for children who lived on the street. So basically what she observed in the very beginning was 
But if children had nothing before them, just nature, so sticks, plants, stones, all that stuff, they would start to order them. So they'd get the sticks. She observed them with sticks from trees, branches, and the kids would be playing with them. And then suddenly they would put them in order from biggest to smallest. You know, they'd be like, oh, look, let's put them in a pattern. Or they'd get stones, and there were some were brown, some were white. And they'd go, kids would go, brown, brown, white, brown, brown, white, brown, brown, white. And this is, this is mathematics. That's maths, like right there. And so she devised these materials where kids could learn on their own terms. They would discover it themselves. Rather than saying, today we're going to learn about patterns. She would say, here is a load of different colored stones. Play with them. And the kids would play, play, play. But suddenly, you'd see that they put them in order. And she would like, ah, now they know about patterns. Then you would just consolidate that with some teaching. So she designed it as that. And then what happened was it morphed into this, these really precise materials, which are very expensive, made out of, you know, uh, Europe. And, and now one piece of material is $200. And so it turned into, well, if you want to run a Montessori school, you have to have all these materials. And it's going to cost you 150 grand per classroom to kit it out. And so suddenly it wasn't for the poor, it was for the very rich. And then you had, you know, the royal family in the, in the UK sending their kids to Montessori school. And then it became elitist, you know. So um, it's taken its journey, as you said, and, and that's probably why, you know, you see it in some places more than others. But in my personal opinion and, and the work that I've done, especially in Himalayas, um, in Nepal, we tried to take it back to its original standpoint, which it, it's all about, you know, the philosophy of, you learn from the things that are before you and you just use them as, as a tool. I mean, maths is in nature if you look hard enough. You know, literacy is all around you when you, when you know where to look. So you can find it. You, you know, it's just that um, it's not always as easy to find if you're not looking in the right places. Sweet. So I know in Montessori, uh, at least here in the United States, I'd love to hear, you know, what it's like there in Australia for this. Very, very common for Montessori schools to be just through the first primary. So you'll into kindergarten and they're kind of done. There's some that just like that. There's some that just go through sixth grade. And then there's some very small amount that go all the way to eighth grade. Uh, and then they're done. There's not typically like Montessori high school. So I'd love to hear what your opinion is on what would a Montessori high school look like if that is something you recommend that the United States or other countries add on to, to have a high school Montessori and what that would look like. So I think the, the first thing to do, let's, clear, let's, let's let your listeners be clear what Montessori is, right? Let's just make sure that we know what it is. Because a lot of people don't, and it's hard to summarize. And I've been asked this question a trillion times, like, what is Montessori? Even yesterday, I was in a factory um, helping a guy unpack lots of Montessori materials, which he's shipping to Nepal for me very kindly. And all of his workers were in the office, like 20 women. And he was talking to me. He goes, hey you know, what is Montessori? I've always wanted to ask you, like, what is it? And I said, okay, well, I, I said, I'll tell you in, you know, in two minutes. And so this is, this is Montessori in two minutes, not even two minutes. You and I, Mitchell, we went to a school probably where when you learned about volcanoes, which you did and so did I, we all did, we learned about volcanoes in every curriculum in the world. In most schools in the world, it's taught like this. And this isn't me criticizing, but this is me comparing. Um, the teacher will say this, Hello, everybody. We're going to learn about volcanoes today. And on the board, you will see a diagram of a volcano. Okay, now volcanoes are all over the world and lava erupts out of them and it comes from the mantle. Here's the structure of the earth. 
Let's write it down in our books and label the diagram. So you've got five minutes and you label it from the board and you, you label it with the vent and the name vent and the magma chamber and the cone and, the, and you do all of this stuff and you color it in and 20 minutes of the lesson is now gone and you've got a diagram in your book that looks really nice. And teacher's like, yes, everyone in my class has got a diagram of a volcano and it's labeled correctly. Beautiful. And she says, okay, now we're going to read, open your textbook to page 55. We're going to read this paragraph of volcanoes. Let's read it together. In fact, no, let the best reader of the class, Mitchell, you're going to read it because you're the best reader. Read it to the class. You read it, read it. We all go, wow, Mitchell's such a great reader. Then we highlight the key words in that paragraph. She says, now, answer these five comprehension questions on the paragraph about volcanoes. And we answer them in our groups. An hour has gone, and she says, right, on Friday, there's going to be a test on volcanoes. Remember everything I've said today, and you'll, you're a volcanologist. You've got everything I needed you to know. <laughs> That's 99.9% .9 of schools in the world. If I was that teacher for 15 years. So this is, this is just it. I mean, you probably went to the same lesson. You know, we all, on every single subject, <laughs> we probably went to that lesson, right? Montessori <laughs> is this. Montessori, the difference in Montessori is this, is that the teacher says, hello, everybody. Today, we're going to learn about volcanoes. Now, I don't know everything about volcanoes. How could I possibly know that? I'm a human being just like you. I only know what I've experienced and what I've read. But I'm going to tell you something really cool about volcanoes, right? Really interesting. So then he or she shares a really interesting thing. So it might be about Vesuvius or Krakatoa and describes it to the children, a real tangible thing. And she will then stop talking after about 15 minutes and the kids are all inspired. It just has to be inspiring. Whether it's a video or a real life experience where she climbed a volcano in Bali or something, something inspiring to get the kids hooked. And then she says, or he says, what would you like to know about volcanoes? And all the kids put their hands up. And one kid says, hey, how hot is lava? Great question. Uh, another kid, can lava melt steel? Great question. Another one, um, what would happen if a super volcano erupted? Great question. Another child says, um, did a volcano really block out the sun in 536 AD and cause a global famine? That's a great question. And she writes these questions down. It takes five minutes and they're all on the board behind her. And she says, wow, you guys are amazing. What great questions you've got. Now your job by Friday, is to answer one of these questions or all of them. You can work on the floor, on a table, you can work in a pair, an individual, you can work in a group. And I don't mind how you represent your research. It could be a diagram, a drawing, a model, a dance, a report, a show, it's up to you. But on Friday, we're all gonna meet on the carpet and you're gonna share with us what you know about volcanoes and you're going to be the teacher. So you click your fingers and all the kids are like, Oh my God, okay, you get, I'll work with you. Let's build a model. And the child says, I don't want to build a model. I want to write a report. Okay, uh, I won't work with you. I'll work with, yeah, let's get the, will you get the papier mache? I'll get the paint. You get the colors. Okay, I'll meet you on the table. Let's get started. And before you know it, everyone's working. Everyone's working on volcanoes on their own terms. And they're actually doing something really amazing at this point is they're telling you what they're going to be when they're older without you asking. Because your architect will go and build a model every time. Your reporter, your journalist will go and write a report. Your artist will paint a picture. Uh, your team leader will run a group. He'll have a team around him of children who don't know have any direction. They'll be like, okay, guys, this week we're going to do, you get the paper, you get, and you as the teacher, you step back and you observe. And what you observe are skills. You will see exactly what skills your children have got by watching them. And mainstream school, when you're at the front as the show pony all the time, talking, 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 you never get to see them 
in action because you're too busy controlling everything they say and do and write because you you want every single book to be the same so it has ticks and all of that stuff in it and that's not the way education should actually be it should be the second way um, and the second thing I would say is that most teachers don't have time to observe but they really want to watch their children in action and um, Montessori allows that because you're letting them go you let them go and you trust them and so that's the difference between the two how I explain it to people and just in summary, when I did this yesterday in the factory to this man, all of his workers were working at their tables typing away, and I saw them all stop talking. Sorry, stop typing. And they, came, they all started to wander over like a magnet. And this one lady said, oh, my God, it sounds amazing. My son would love that. Where can I find it? And they're all like, oh, my God, me too. You know, and they, they were just they were converted straight away because I think the realization is that's, that's actually what you want out of schooling for your child. You want something like that, an experience. You don't want an ordered lineup. I'll tell you what to say, I'll tell you what to do. Because when you're at the front and you say to the kids, copy this diagram, read that paragraph, highlight the keywords, I'll test you on Friday. What you're actually saying to the children in front of you is you're saying, good morning everybody. Today you can only be as smart as me. Okay. And that's a failure just by saying that because this is 21st century and uh, you don't know everything, how could you? You're a primary school teacher, same as me. You don't know everything. But you say to the kids, the answers are in this room. They're in the library, they're in the iPad, they're on the computer, they're with your friends. You can make a phone call if you want. You can even go and talk to the principal. I think he went to Bali once. Maybe he's climbed a volcano. Oh my God. And off they go. Like, this is awesome. And one child says, my dad's a volcanologist. Can I ask him to come to school? Of course you can. Dad's in school the next day, talk. You know, like, it's, it's easy. It's not hard, but we have to trust we have to trust the kids that they will actually come through with something. And on Friday they might come to the group with nothing. They might come with nothing. You know, they might have nothing. You say, You have nothing. You say, Well, actually, you know, yes, that's right. And it's what happened? Well, we were arguing. Me and the group were arguing so much about who was in charge. And so you unpack that and they learn that the next time they're not going to work with that person or they're going to sort out their debate in a different way. Just like me and you, you know, if we if we hadn't organized our tech today, this podcast would have been a failure, you know, and we would have gone, oh, well, we better sort it out next time because actually we, we haven't got all the time in the world. So, you know, you learn, you, you learn from your mistakes. It's better to let the children learn earlier rather than later. Man, I love that analogy or the description of Montessori way better than the one I, the one that I would give somebody. So I'm, I'm going to use that one from now on. I appreciate the volcano uh, <laughs> description. I'm totally going to use that one for, yeah. for you guys in Australia. What is the, cause I, I don't know the system over there that well for it. So what is the education system built like in Australia for your public schools and in Montessori? Is there public Montessori schools over there or they all have to be private? Cause you guys haven't adopted that over there as a country. Yeah, we have. Uh, they're all private here uh, at the moment. I mean, we're working at the moment with one school. It's a public school. They're going to be the pioneer and they're going to change to be a Montessori school. And we've been working with them for about six months. Um, it's very cool to see that happening, especially to see the teachers. Uh, you know, when teachers said, oh, my goodness, I, I feel alive again. Like, I've, I've lost my way. Now I feel alive as a teacher again. But the education system here is good. You know, the curriculum is great. Uh, it's very open. Um, to interpretation. I think, you know, this is not, this is, this is global. So this is what happens. And I've worked in schools all over the world. 
involved. You know, you can imagine I've been to India, I've worked in schools with 20,000 kids in India. And so this is kind of, you know, each country has a curriculum. Well, actually, some countries don't have a curriculum, but each country has their own curriculum they've adopted or they've written themselves. Um, and what happens, you know, across the world in the U.S., all over the place, is that a teacher goes to university and they train as a teacher and the university lecturer is really inspirational usually and says, you know what, you get out there and you change the world with your class. You're going to do this. You, you've all seen those movies, Denzel Washington, where he's teaching a class and they're all, you know, delinquents and he turns them all around and they're all heroes. You're like, you all start crying, you feel good. For a teacher, you, as a teacher, you feel good. You want to be that. But what happens is you go to your first job interview and the principal says, okay, tell me about yourself. And at the end of it, he goes, you've got the job, or she, you've got the job. And uh, you take the job on. And uh, he hands you a curriculum document. He says, look, here's your syllabus. Go and teach that to the kids. And you look at it, and it's not inspiring. It's not inspiring to you because that's not what... You know how to teach the content. It's not how you want to teach it. You know, it says that you will teach volcanoes, but the way it tells you to teach it is not a way that inspires you. You want to have your twist. You want to put your own, you know, je ne sais quoi onto the curriculum because you're a passionate human being who's lived a life, who's got experiences, been through things and knows stuff. But the principal says, look, you know what? I understand that you want to rewrite the curriculum and do your little tweaks, but don't do that because I've got the government coming in to do an inspection and look, they want it like this, so just say it like that. And do it like that, and tell the kids to write their stuff in their book, and tick it, and put five gold stars, and put it in their folder, and then when the government come in, then it's all good, and then that's fine. And the teacher walks away and feels deflated that they can't be the teacher they wanted to be. You know, they can't be that person. And so the problem is that it's not with the curriculum. It's actually from the trust that comes from the very, very top, and I'm talking government. Government should say to teachers and school principals, hey, Matt, you're a school principal. You've been through this. You're 25 years in the game here. Like, you know your stuff. I totally trust you. Run the school. As long as no kids run away, get run over or die in your school, totally fine. Like, you do it as you wish. Because the reality is that parents will vote with their feet. If your school is a failing school, parents will leave. So you will know. The government will know without coming in to do an inspection. If you've got 10 kids then, you know, your school's not doing a very good job. But you've got a waiting list down the street. The government should say, hey, man, these are they must be doing something right in there. Let's let them go with it. Let's let them run with it. And then the principal can then say to the teachers, hey, I'm not worried anymore about the government coming in to inspect how we're teaching because we know how to teach. Go for it. Here's a curriculum. You rewrite it. You make it what you want it to be. And you inspire those kids to be the leaders of tomorrow to save this planet. Um, and that's the shift that needs to happen. It's a very important shift. Um, and I, I don't think that, that, you know, that big eye in the sky peering down on schools and checking have you ticked the books, have you got the grades, have you put the gold stars, is there feedback on every page, needs to happen. I think it's about, you know, Montessori said, you know, you can judge the quality of education by the smiles on the children's faces. And, you know, I think we should go back to that. That's that. Mm. It sounds all whimsical and hairy-fairy, but the reality is that I think we need to go back to that because it's so micromanaged that the inspiration is lost and you've got the mass resignation in education. Teachers are leaving because what was advertised to them in university is not the truth when they get into the classroom. It actually becomes a bureaucratic nightmare of filling in forms, doing checklists, um, when really you want to be teaching. You want to be inspiring. Mm. Do you feel 
like uh, high schools, and again, maybe it's Australia, but also I'm thinking of the United States for, for this question, that you could take a typical high school that's not Montessori and teach the curriculum in a Montessori way and still pass all the tests that are technically required by the, the state and the, the country. Do you think that's possible? 100%. Of course it's possible. I mean, uh, there's a really good example of that. There's a school here in Australia, has a high school. It's called the Hills Montessori School. And uh, the principal there, Kathy, she's amazing. And so I know her. And so it's, it's one of the best high schools I've ever been to in my life. And I'll tell you how cool it is. And for anyone listening, like they're like, wow, I want to go to a school like that. So it's a school on the outskirts of Adelaide, which is one of the main cities here in Australia. And it's on the, uh, on the edge of what we call the bush or the forest. So the school backs into the forest. Imagine this. When you enroll in the school in year seven, so you've left year six primary school and you go to high school. In this school, there are jobs that need to happen. So the school needs to run. And typically in a school, you will have a kitchen and somebody, a man or a woman will run the kitchen. There'll be a series of chefs who will run the kitchen for the kids and they will cook them lunch every day. But imagine if part of the curriculum was that you had to take a job on in the school and within the job description was embedded the curriculum outcomes. So let's say that you, Mitchell, as you went to high school, that you did your maths, English, science, all that stuff you need to do in high school. But one component of the curriculum was that you needed to do a job. Now that job wasn't going out to do work experience at a plumbers or carpenters and something you're not interested in. It was in your school and it was part of running your school. So your job, Mitchell, you might apply for head of kitchen. And you, get, you go to an interview with the old head of kitchen who's in year eight and you do the interview and he says, Mitchell, you got the job. Now your job now is to run the kitchen for one term, 10 weeks. You've got to do the stock take. You've got to do ordering the food. You've got to prep it. You've got to manage your staff. You've got to make sure the kitchen's clean. You've got to do all of that stuff, the timing. And you've got to make sure that every day when those 300 kids come to the canteen, there's food ready for them to eat. And if there's no food for them to eat, there's going to be problems. So, you know, you've got a team around you who will work with you. Your mentors will be the children who are older than you who did it last year. They will lead you in the first term. And there are like 20 jobs in a school as head of forestry. There's, you know, there's all this cool stuff in, happening in the school as part of your curriculum. And you do one every single term, which, number one, sustains the school. And you've got a responsibility to your peers and your teachers. But number two, you learn life skills which you never get to learn anywhere else. And hidden within that job is the curriculum. There's no question like, this is a job for me and you now, right? We're doing a podcast. We're actually learning how to actively listen. We're learning how to manage you know, technology. We're learning how to manage our time. We're both here on time. This is, this is all in the curriculum if we wanted it to be. It's just finding the connection between the work you're doing and what's in the curriculum and the connections. Just like I said to you off camera beforehand, Maths is in nature if you look hard enough. It's everywhere. And so their links are there. It's just having the time to make the links. And imagine a high school like that. Look, imagine that. You have this responsibility to your community and you are respected and you have your place. We find that children feel displaced when they don't feel that they need it in their community. And we have all these problems around that. You know, I'm ousted by the children. I'm not wanted. I'm not required. I feel upset. I'm feeling depressed. I'm yeah, all this stuff that we, that we see happening around the world. But if everybody has their place and everyone has their role and everyone's reliant on everybody else, 
then you feel, you know, I listened to an amazing podcast where it said the top 10 things that keep you alive the longest. And you think it's, you think it's food and exercise, like diet and health. Actually, the number one was that you, you needed, you are needed in, in your family or in the community. When you are needed, then you will stay alive because you are required, you are wanted and people need you. Um, and, you know, we need to give that to our children straight away. You're not coming to school line up to fill you up like a bucket with facts. You're coming to school because we all need you here. This school cannot function without you. So we need you to come every day and we rely upon you. And you go, I'm needed, I'm wanted, I'm required, I'm responsible, I'm respected, I'm trusted. I'm going to school to do my job, as it were, not a real job. But, I mean, it's not very hard to do. It's very easy to implement something like that and very cool. Yeah, and it just makes sense. And when you were just saying that part, it reminded me of, um, so I was a youth pastor back in, you know, a few years ago in Alaska for seven years. Loved, loved that time because I just have always loved kids. And one of the things I remember is the kids that were the diff- more difficult kids that didn't want to listen as much, you know, back and then, I'd always try and give them something to do. and be like, they were like being difficult. Like, hey, can you, I need your help actually. Can you please go uh, take out the trash really quick? Or can you go whatever? And it was, it blew my mind because I didn't know what I, I was just trying to give them something to do and it, it would work. They'd be like, oh, you, you need me to do something like, okay. And they like completely flipped and they were like, hey, do you need something else from me, Mitchell? And I was like, yeah, can you do this? And then they'd show up the next week and they go, hey, if you need me to do something, let me know and I'd be more than happy to help. And they just have this responsibility and ownership over the program. And it was like, so when you said that immediately made me think of, of, of that. So how, how do we, how do we get schools to do that? That's the thing. I don't know how Australia could do that or United States could add that to our curriculum of requiring schools to do that. Do you, what do you, what do you think? Well, it goes back to that conversation we had earlier about trust, doesn't it? You know, imagine if the, imagine if the principal had the, the, um, the ownership to be able to say to his staff, look, Hey, does anyone have any good ideas how we can give agency to our kids and independence? And one teacher's like, um, we could have a, a schedule of jobs in a school where they help us run the school. And the principal says, oh, no, no, no. Government's not going to like that. That's too left field. Like, that's not happening. If the trust was there, the principal could say, you know what, Barbara, that's a bloody good idea. How would you implement it? And Barbara says, well, let me go away and put a plan together, come back to the team, and comes back to the team. The team says, wow, this is great. All these jobs are great. Let's do it. And so when you have trust, you have these innovations that happen. And then when you see them, when other people see them, they go, I'm going to do that too. So, you know, you've got to start somewhere. You know, you've got to let, you've got to let, education has to change continuously. This is the fact. The only constant is is change. You know, that's it. If you're not changing, you're failing. And so you've got to keep the ball rolling, as it were. And I think that, that, that you know, I'm doing, a, I've done some big talks recently on trust, trust in education. I think that's very, very important. Teachers need that. I was lecturing at a university two weeks ago and you know I talked to the all the graduates there and said you know how is it and, and they said you know we've just been handed you know a blueprint and to say say this and do that and walk here and act like this and it doesn't feel good and so you know teachers don't want that and children don't want it so I think trust is very important uh, you know take it back to when we were at school and still happening today in 99% we, we say to kids, if you need to go to the toilet, put your hand up and I will, t- I will let you go. Like, just think about that. What you're saying to the kid is, hey, children, I do not trust the communication between your bladder and your brain. I don't trust that at all. 
when your bladder tells your brain, I need to go and empty myself, I don't trust it, I don't trust your functions and your evolution, I will decide when your bladder communicates with your brain. Put your hand up and I will allow that to happen. Like, that's ridiculous. That is ridiculous. We should say to children, I trust that your bladder and your brain can communicate effectively because this is an evolutionary process over hundreds of thousands of years. If your bladder tells your brain it needs to empty, off you go. You do not need to ask my permission. And that's very simple. Kids go, well, I'm trusted to go to the toilet. <laughs> you know, like, it, of course you are. That's ridiculous. Why would, I, why would I want to control that? But we do. We do do that. And we need to, re, we need to rethink this. It's very important. Now, flip side of that, because I totally agree with that. So then I always go, what about the kids that we think are abusing it? And they're like, he's always going to let me leave if I say I have to go to the bathroom. Is there a way to yeah. teach that back into them or you just let them slowly learn it? You don't need to teach them, do you? Because the community will teach them. It's like this. If you have a group of friends and you go to a barbecue, you know, 10 times with the same group of friends. And Mitchell, you turn up with no food, right, to share and you eat everyone else's food, and then you're rude, and you leave. After a period of time, you will not be going to a barbecue again, because people are going to stop inviting you. Am I right? Yep. So, you're in class, and you're six, and the teacher says you can go to the bathroom when you wish. Now, your, your group, your pair, your, your team in the classroom are working on their project on dinosaurs, but you're always in the bathroom, Mitchell, all the time you're always out of class going to the toilet what will happen is your group will say hey Mitchell you haven't been helping in this project and we don't want you in our team anymore because you're not actually pulling your weight and then you will come to me and you'll say hey Gavin um, it's not fair my group's not letting me be in the group anymore or do XYZ do you know why what did they say well they said I'm always in the toilet all the time are you in the toilet all the time yes okay how can we fix this problem I'm not going to go to the toilet all the time. Okay, there you go. The environment has taught you a very valuable lesson. But you've got to let it play out. You know, like you've got to let that play. You know, obviously you're not going to let him stay in the toilet for six months, but you've got to let it play out um, because that's how the world actually works in real life. You haven't got this governing body overlooking you, the barbecue alliance who are going to say, Mitchell, you have eaten too many sausages. Like, that's not going to happen, you know. But your friends will teach you that. It's like when you're at school and you're sitting with a friend and you're talking a lot, you know, and the teacher typically says, you two, you're talking, separate. You're on that side, you're on that side. That happened to me a lot at school. I'm sure it happened to you and many other people. What actually should happen is the teacher should let you sit together and at the end of the lesson say, hey, guys, so can I have you work? And you say, well, uh, we haven't got any work. Oh, no, there's no work? Well, actually, we're all going on a field trip, but it requires you to know the stuff to come on the trip. You're going to have to go to the other class because you don't know about, you know, uh, bandicoots. Some are going to a bandicoot sanctuary because you were talking a lot. So you're going to have to stay here because that was part of the rules. You need to know your stuff. Oh, and can we, um, can we stay behind and do the work now? Of course you can. No problem. I'm not going to enforce that, but you can if you want to come on the excursion. So stay behind and do the project and then you reflect with them. What are you going to do next time? Oh, actually, we're not going to sit with each other anymore because we realized that we don't get any work done. That's a great call. I like that. Okay, well, you decide. Um, and you, you learn. You, you, know, you put your hand in a flame. It's hot. You don't put your hand in a flame again. You've got to put it in once. You've got to put it in once. So you've got to, you've got to have that experience. We, we can't, you know, modicol our children in, 
you know, in this wonderful environment where they never make a mistake, because that, that's not that's not real life, is it? No, you're right. Can't put them in a bubble. Bubbles are not great <laughs> for that. Um, and I don't know how well you know the United States school system and how it's structured, but I would just love your opinion. If there, what is things maybe you've heard or seen? If you aren't able to answer, totally fine. That you would say, man, I think this would be a great way to improve the school system you guys currently have over there. And this is what I would maybe, maybe add or do. Well, look, you know, it's, it's the same. It's a very similar scenario. You know, isolating the United States is one thing, but, and I, I did a podcast last week in Canada and I got asked the same question. And so, you know, the, the reality is that curriculum documents around the world, which teachers follow as their kind of guidelines, they're the same country over, you know, it's the same. We all learn the same stuff, persuasive writing. We learn about adding fractions with different denominators. We learn about continents. We learn about all these things. They're in every curriculum in the world. There's no question about that. But I think the most important part of doing any curriculum revision with any country is giving ownership to the children of how they want to represent their work. And I break that down in this form. In every curriculum in the world, there is, there is the, the outcome that you will teach the kids how to write a persuasive letter. You did it, Mitchell, and so did I, and everybody listening did it at some point if they went to school. You will learn how to write a persuasive letter. Now, there's two ways to teach that. Way number one is this. We're going to learn how to write a persuasive letter today, everybody, guys. And you teach the kids about emotive language. So you're pulling the heart out of the chest of the person you're writing to to get their emotions going, to get them hooked. You'll then work on paragraphs and syntax and sentence structure and grammar and these things. When the kids have got the basic fundamentals, you'll say, now, we're going to write a letter. And the kids go, cool, it's my first letter. You say, look, we're going to write a letter to the school principal because... Uh, you know, you've got three choices. You can either try to get recess extended by five minutes, you can try to get chocolate in the canteen, or you can ban school uniforms. I guarantee you probably did school uniforms, Mitchell, yourself, and you wrote to the principal, right? Now, lots of people, you do this, right? <laughs> and we, we write this letter to the principal. Now, number one, the principal never reads it because he's too busy. Uh, no change happens because it never was, as if he was ever going to put chocolate in the canteen. That's not happening. You get your letter back from the teacher with ticks and gold stars, and you put it in a folder, and you take it home to show mom or it goes on the wall. Right? So that's education 101 right now, almost 100% of schools on the planet, I would guess. Right? Teach that. It's a curriculum outcome in every curriculum on, in the world. Or there's this which is when you give agency and independence to the teacher and the child. You say to the kids, we're going to learn all the stuff you need to know about writing a letter, syntax, grammar, sentence structure, paragraphs, emotive language, all of that. That's standard. But you're going to write a letter. What matters to you? What matters to you? What would you like to change in this world? One child in Uganda says, in my country of Uganda, you know, um, that female genital mutilation is huge, and I'm a girl, and I'm really worried about that, because I'm eight, and I know that's coming, and I'm stressed. Okay, that matters to you. So you're going to write a letter to somebody to try to change that, okay? Um, let's find out who that somebody is. Oh, it's the health minister. Okay, 
You're going to write a letter to the health minister telling him or her exactly what your woes are and how you feel. Go for it. So this girl, she writes a letter to the health minister about how she feels. And she puts it in an envelope with his address. She puts a stamp on it. She goes to the post box and she posts it. And she waits for a response. Maybe there is no response. And she writes again. And that's what you do. You give agency to the children. So it's not about the teacher getting a grade and saying, this is a good letter. The grade is if the thing that you did had the actions that you wanted to take place once you did it. So, you know, I'll give you a perfect example is that the kids in my school, I demand this exact same lesson. I said to the kids, what matters to you? And this girl said, you know what matters to me, Gavin? There's not enough women in politics. And she was 10. I said, that's great. She goes, I'm going to write a letter to a politician who is a woman to get her to come to school. So she wrote to this lady called Zali Stegel, an ex-Olympian. She she's in the Senate here. She's a big powerhouse. Uh, very hard to get her. She wrote a letter to her. I didn't read it. I didn't check it. I didn't mark it. Nothing. I said, you know, if that letter is good enough, she will arrive in this school. You are inviting her to school. I get a phone call as the principal. Hello, Gavin. Zali Stegel's office here. Hello, Zali Stegel's office. Yes, we'd like to accept your offer of coming to school. Uh, when can we come? They came in, came to school. We sat in the classroom. The kids interviewed her and talked to her. She said, Gavin, thank you so much for inviting me. I said, I didn't invite you. She said, what do you mean? You didn't invite me. You told the kids to write to me. I said, no, I didn't. I told the kids to write to somebody that mattered to them, could change something that they were bothered about. And if the letter was good enough, then they would arrive. And you've arrived. So the letter was clearly good enough. So she gets a grade A. No grade, but the whimsical grade in her mind. And I said to, the, to Zali, what she's learned today is that no problem is bigger or too big that you can't write a letter to change it. You can't change it through words. She, and, you know, the girl came to me the next day, this girl who got Zali to come in and said, Gavin, can I have the queen? Can we help me find the queen's address? <laughs> so she clearly thought, now I can write to the queen and get stuff happening. So it's about empowerment. And so I would say to anybody in the world, uh, any teacher, that that tiny twist, giving education purpose, real purpose, the child doesn't care that you put a grade A. They don't care. No one cares. What they care about is if they make a poster, it's not to go in the book. It's to go on the wall, down the street, to clean up the local pond. He says, did you know that the fish are dying because you're throwing a litter? And, and the kid walks past the pond and sees someone putting their litter in the bin rather than the pond and goes, ah, I did that because I made a poster. I'm powerful. I can change the world here. And it's that. That's the twist. That's the change. That's what we need to do. And that's what we will do. You know, that's what we're fighting for. That's what everyone's working towards. So it's very cool at the moment. And so I wouldn't target the American uh, syllabus as such, but I would target all syllabuses with that same adaptation that purpose, intention, passion, those things, you add them in the curriculum and you have a whole, you're playing a different ball game very quickly. So good. All right. So I got two, two final questions for you and they can be as long as answers as you want. But if you had to give a, for, for the main listeners we have, if you were to give any piece of advice to them, and all of this has been really good advice. Don't get me wrong. Piece of advice for a teacher or school leader right now. What would that kind of piece of advice from you be? Well, not that I'm an expert, but I will say this. If you're a school leader, then if you want your children to be empowered, you have to empower your teachers. Like Richard Branson says, don't worry about your customers, worry about your staff, and your staff will take care of the customers. So from a school leader's point of view, don't worry about the kids. 
Take care of your teachers and the teachers will take care of your kids. Trust them. Give them agency. Give them ownership. Let them be the teacher that they always wanted to be and they won't ever leave you. That's the fact. Because every teacher comes into school dreaming to change the world. And if you take that away from them, they'll look for it somewhere else. You know, Or you'll have a half-baked teacher who sold their soul coming to school. And for teachers... Um, I would say, you know, the opposite of that is when you take a job on, or you're doing a job, or you're accepting a position, the last question you should ask the school leader is, are you going to allow me to be the teacher that I want to be because this is what I want to be? And if the answer is no, say, see you later, there's another job down the street where potentially they will let me be the teacher that they want me to be. Because quite often, teachers have to go bend the rules and go outside of the borders to be that. And they shouldn't have to, in actual fact. You don't go to the doctors and say to the doctor, hmm, are you sure this is the right medication? Are you sure I should take two a day? Have you done your research? Because you trust him. He's a professional. So our teachers, they're professionals. So trust them. It's not just about playing in the sand and learning the ABCs. As a teacher, you're a best friend, a philosopher, a doctor, you know, a psychiatrist, a teacher, you know, as well as cleaning the toilets and tying shoelaces and holding hands on the playground. You're everything. So it's about time we gave teachers A, the respect that they need, and B, the trust that they deserve. Uh, and, you know, I think it's teachers need to... I'm not trying to raise activists here, but what I'm trying to say is we will we will lose those passionate teachers because they can't be the teachers they want to be if we don't just let them roll with it. And I think that's really important. Love that. Love it. And the final uh, question I had for you, it's just inspired by your TED Talk, is, you know, Gavin, how, how can education change the world? Education can change the world if we understand that the leadership and the responsibility that we need to save the planet for tomorrow is behind the classroom door of every classroom in the entire world. It's sitting on the carpet right now, having circle time, learning ABCs, having a snack, talking to their friends, those children are the leaders of tomorrow. We have not done a very good job today, as you know. We've got war, climate change, famine, inequality. All these terrible things are happening. You know, we're cutting down the Amazon at a rate of one American football pitch per minute. Per minute. We don't realize that this is, this is our life source. You know, we, do, we cut 10,000 acres down a day of the Amazon rainforest. CO2 levels are the highest they've been in 2 million years on the planet. But still, we don't realize what we're doing as adults. And this is our children's future we're playing with. They're sitting in our classrooms. What we need to actually do to save the world is to give them the keys to this, to give them the skills, not the facts. It's not about giving them the facts. Who cares about facts? I can ask Siri to give me the facts in a heartbeat if I want. Facts are dead. Children should not be coming to school, and we should be treating them like empty vessels that need to be filled up. That's just not a fact. We need to be giving them the skills to make the world a better place in the future, to call out inequality, injustice. All these things that we want them to be to save the planet, we need to empower them now. And the only way to empower them is to trust them and let them go with it in the classroom. So not to have them sitting in rows, listening with fingers on lips, sitting on the hand, put your hand up if you need to go to the toilet. It's dead to say, I trust you, this is your classroom, this is my classroom, we're going to work together, and I want you to be the adult that you want to be, whom you don't know yet. You don't know who that is, but you're going to grow into that in this room with me, and I'm going to let you grow as you wish. 
Uh, that's the way that it needs to go, and that's the future of education in my eyes. And if we don't shift and we don't move, you know, we're looking at perils beyond belief in terms of, you've seen it in the U.S., you've got crazy hurricanes, wildfires in California, there's floods in Bangladesh. You know, it's, it's not looking great. Um, and so we need to empower our students to be the thinkers of tomorrow that can right the wrongs that we've created, unfortunately. You have encouraged me, you've inspired me, and I'm excited to uh, go uh, continue to be a, um, well, obviously a dad friend and pour into him, mm -hmm. but also all the kids that I can, you know, come in contact with. So Gavin, obviously, thank you so much for giving of your time. Uh, I know you're a busy guy. We're doing this 14 hour time difference to be able to do this podcast. So thank you for being flexible and please continue. Just do what you're doing. You're doing amazing stuff. So thank you for all the years of service and the years um, that are ahead for you. Thank you so much for that. And firstly, you know, lastly, sorry, I appreciate your time too. I mean, you're, it's obviously the middle of the night for you and the early morning for me. So I understand we're on other ends of the world here. But I want to just say one final thing before I leave. And that, you know, I was a school principal uh, in a school here for four years. I recently resigned from that role. And I've opened a school online called the, the Up School. It's called upschool.co. And basically, it's a school taught by me online, all around purpose, intention, empowerment, everything we've just talked about online and free to any child who can't go to school for whatever reasons. It doesn't matter if you're a billionaire on a billion dollar yacht and there's no school, you come to school and I'm there. If you're a girl in Afghanistan and the Taliban are not letting you go to school, you come and I'm there. And just to give you a, a heads up, I opened 13 weeks ago. I have 25,000 students so far. And on Wednesday last week was my record. I taught figurative language and there were 9,000 students in one class. Um, so for anybody out there who wants to access that and be part of this journey, um, we've just partnered with some huge organizations in the, in the world and uh, any Americans who want to come to that and, and enjoy it, it's totally free. There's never a charge. It's completely free of charge. And if you like what you hear, then I'll be there on the other side of the screen to teach your little munchkins. <laughs> I love it. I want to check it out. I'm gonna, I think I want to join or whatever I need to do for it. So thank you, Gavin. I love it. Amazing, mate. Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate everything. Well, another huge shout out and a thank you to Gavin McCormick for taking time and being on the podcast today. It truly was an absolute pleasure to have him on and to learn from him and to just hear his thoughts on education and what strategies he wanted to share and that he's doing. He's an awesome guy, an awesome educator, and I'm wishing him nothing but the best as he continues to do what he's doing because he's doing an awesome job. And as always, I'm hoping you guys can take at least one thing, maybe two, three from today's episode that you can take back to your school to make it better than it is right now or better yourselves, better than you've ever been before. I'm hoping that for you and hoping that for your school. And if your school needs help, if you need help growing enrollment, finding ways to, to bring in more uh, revenue from that enrollment so you can pay your teachers more, bring in new programs so that these kids have a win-win situation. Man, I want to help you do that. I want to hear from you. So please reach out to me and find us online, schoolsuccessmakers.com. That's schoolsuccessmakers.com. I'd love to hear from you. Or I would love to personally see you in our private Facebook group just for school leaders called School Success Makers. I'd love to see you in there. Go check that out on Facebook, that private group just for school leaders called School Success Makers. This was an awesome episode, but we're going to have more awesome guests as the weeks and months go on. So tune in next time as we have another awesome guest on the School Success Podcast. We'll see you then.